It didn't take much more than a bottle and two chairs to make a speakeasy. This is what Daniel Okrent said in his book, Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. Today, join us for some stories. Get your own bottle, glass, mug, and relax. This is Speak Easily, and I'm your host, Krista Stoffer. Hi, Derek. <laughs> well, hello there. Not bad, not bad at all. That's a cool space that you're in. It is fun. Yeah, this is a, a friend of mine uh, helped build out this room. His name is Ed Jenny, and he, I believe, has cut all of these little fun guys, and really it's Morse code. Oh, it is. What does it say? Do you know what it say? I have no idea what it says. I wish I did. You've got to find out. Uh, it's actually trydesigngroup.com. That's that's who made it. So shout out to trydesigngroup.com. Yeah. Nice. Maybe it's like winning lottery numbers. You could be missing out. I'm totally missing out. I bet it's telling me all of the loaded secrets of the world, you know. Yeah. You might have the answer to COVID back there, Derek. Stop. Right there. It's right here. It's a weird right thing here. to just put in Morse code on a wall, though. I don't know. I think that's actually one of the cool things about the space is that, you know, it's it's completely different than anything that you would have seen in any yeah. other, you know, any other place. So. Yeah. You hear me okay? Yep. Oh, yeah, you're, you're good. Fine. You're good. Yeah. I was just explaining to Ben, and this is, you'll know quickly how classy this podcast is, that I have to stop drinking seltzer water while I'm recording. Why? Um, the, the burps are pretty intense. Uh, of, course, of, course, <laughs> so, of course. So if you see me clicking mute really quick and going, that's what's happening. <laughs> that's um, okay. I've got coffee, so, you know, like... <laughs> I don't have the burps yet, but you know, it's always a possibility. They're coming, you know, it's, I love beverages that do things to the body. They are outstanding. I'm sure, you know, as we get older, we all have proclivities, right? You know, when did you, here's a weird question. When did you start drinking coffee? How old were you? Uh, 25. Wow. What was the decision there? I was teaching at Columbus College of Art and Design, and I was uh, grading tons and tons of, of like design work, and uh, I was teaching anatomy for the artist. Oh, and, oh. And, I uh, like anatomy in general. <laughs> well, it was. I mean, I was teaching yeah. the Latin terms for the muscles and the circulatory system and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, we did these overlays of like muscles and um, skeletal systems. And I had stacks and stacks and stacks. And at that point, I was kind of trying to find new places to work from. And Stoss is right around the corner from where I live. So uh, that, that was uh, an easy fit there. And of course, you start with the candy drinks, the, you know, the, <laughs> the huge ice lattes and caramel and stuff. And after uh, a couple months of really denting my wallet pretty hardcore i was like i can't really do that anymore so it turned into just regular coffee so, okay, so how do you... at that point yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> how do you take it now what's your what's your color preference uh cream and sugar it's a simple i'm not a black coffee drinker i don't think i'll ever be a black coffee drinker but uh cream and sugar. Same. i can but eh, i'd rather have cream and sugar in it you know yeah i'm still quite reactive to caffeine. So I think like the bitter taste is something I enjoy, but not to the, like the, the level of like tar, you know, of course, like my mom loves like the blacker, the tar based coffee, the better, you know, so 
coffee you can chew. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It pours out like a sludge, you know. No, no, I can't. I can't do. I, honestly, Starbucks is a bit much for me. Oh yeah, I mean it's a. I mean I love Starbucks. That it. That's a growing taste yeah. for sure. You know. They and I just discovered that their blonde roast. They don't have on tap. Is that the right word? Clearly, right. yeah. have more alcohol than Starbucks, but um, like. <laughs> They have to they have to do the pour over now. So I am I've gotten really good at pissing everybody off in the drive-thru line because they don't have any coffee ready. And oh, yeah. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know three or four minutes of pour overs before they get to your like, you know, drink, you know. <laughs> to my blonde roast. Of- yes. <laughs> Although more the light the lighter the roast of the coffee, the more caffeine is in it. <gasps> Maybe that's why I like it. It's counterintuitive, but um, the extraction process for the bean, um, most of the caffeine happens right away uh, and during the extraction. So um, when you roast the bean longer, you're roasting out the oils and the caffeine and you're creating a more caramelized and carbon-based thing. So counterintuitively, the, the lighter the roast, the more caffeine. Worth Wait. <laughs> and the most caffeine is usually in like an iced coffee because it's brewed for a long period of time. It's cold brewed. And so like a cold brew coffee has way more caffeine in it than a regular coffee does. For my, um, that's what this says. That's, that's exactly what, what that says. Yeah. Oh my gosh. See, now we don't have the winning lottery numbers or answers to COVID, but we know the caffeine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is a weird thing to have back there on a wall in Morse code, but I mean, I'll roll with it. It's, um, uh, I think it's, now. yeah, I think this is kind of like a nod to the, the telephone, you know, before, <laughs> before it was just vocals, it was, you know, uh, Morse code. Dashes. Dots yeah. and dashes. Yeah. It reminds me of the exhibit at COSI. This, I don't think it's called Streets of Yesteryear anymore, but the progress. Again, yeah, I, should, progress. I worked there. Um, <laughs> oops. But yeah, in progress, how they have the, I think it's a minor bird that you can make speak using. I don't know Easy. if it ever worked, but yeah. Oh yeah, it's, it's, it's worked. I've, I've, I'm a member there. I've, I've got work there. I've been supported by COSI for years and it was a childhood dream to kind of like go into um, you know, partnerships with them. I'm trying to build out a partnership for next year actually too. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember going to the older location on Broad Street or was it on Broad Street? It was Broad Street. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, seeing the difference between the two. I'm older than I look so. I do remember those days. You, I believe we're all about the same area. Probably, yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm 26, Ben's a little bit older at 27, so you'd probably be, what, 25, 24, right? Oh, totally, totally, yeah. yeah. Perfect, yeah. you? <laughs> totally. Yeah, I can't do that much longer because my kids keep getting older, so it's not <laughs> as well. And just sounding more disgusting. Anyhow, I digress. Um, did you grow up in Columbus? No, um, I grew up in a small little village uh, called Anna, Ohio. Um, it's it's literally a village. It's less than two thousand people. Oh wow! Um, it's west and a little bit north. So I usually say northwest, but it's west and then just a tad bit north. What is it close to? Like, what was your big city hangout? Ah, uh, so the, the, this is like a dartboard. All right, so there's. <laughs> 
first, there's nothing near. Uh, there is a city of Sydney that is oh, yeah. nearby. Yeah. Um, which is about, uh, I think last time I checked was like 20,000 people. But there is no like giant city hangout, you know, like to, to say, I think Sydney is the same size as like um, Grandview. Okay. But um, it's not near another city. So. So you're in the middle of nowhere in Anna. Yeah. In fact, there's a, a Honda plant there. That's if anyone ever knows about Anna, they know there's a Honda plant there. And you have to cross every Honda plant in Ohio to get from Columbus <laughs> to Anna. You go up 33 and you hit Marysville. Yeah. And then you go from Marysville up to 274. You hit it on Indian um, uh, Indian Lake. There's okay. a Honda plant oh, yeah. there. Yeah. And then you keep going and you'll hit Anna. So then you're in Anna. Did you guys have like, was it a one stoplight? Were there shops there? Was there stuff? A downtown bustling Anna downtown? Or oh, no. <laughs> so Sydney is the county seat of, of Shelby County. That's what the county is in. But Anna, it had two stop signs or two stoplights, I think. I had a my graduating class is 56 people, 46 of whom I went to school with. I think 10 went to vocational schools. Um, and we were on the smaller side of the classes. I think the big boom class was 100 students in that grade. So a lot of kids. So many. Anna. <laughs> so. I often joke that I moved in sixth grade. I moved from Sydney, Ohio to Anna and I literally they were rebuilding a school and uh, they were building a new elementary school and for half a year I joined Anna in a two-room schoolhouse um, it was still so Anna has a high school middle school and elementary school kind of all built in one okay. they were building a new elementary school at that time so now it's it's 30 years old I mean hell it's a old school now but you know like um at the time yeah very old school now <laughs> but this the same high school that my grandpa on my mom's side and my grandpa on my dad's side went to is the same school that my dad went to and the same school that i went to and um so how farm schools typically worked a long time ago was you'd have these one room schoolhouses or as in the 1930s and the 1940s, you'd have little hubs that were like a half a gymnasium yeah. and it shared with the, the Catholic church, you know, and, and we were, you know, it wasn't a Catholic school, but yeah. it would share with the parking lot, the Catholics, uh, the Catholic church. And then there was, I think four school rooms, maybe. Oh my gosh. Two on each floor. And they had like, uh, it was fifth and sixth grade, 20 kids per classroom. Um, so when I say grew up in the countryside, I mean, it's yeah, you're not very really, much, very yeah. much country. What did you do for fun? I mean, I, there are, you're, all, you're yeah. a city girl. I'm a, you're yeah. a city girl. Called it, called it, called you out right there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the question that like it, both sides, I've lived in Columbus now for 20 years and when you live in a city, they ask that question about country folk and then country folk also ask that about city people. It's like, um, what do you do? 
uh, you know, there's always this, you know, gatherings at uh, ponds and big, big, you know, barn party type things that you could do. I think everyone had a McDonald's or a Burger King that they would hang out in the 90s and 80s. That oh, yeah. Just hang out there for a while. Um, was but, sports big? Were people big sporty, football-y? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I figured. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't have football until my senior year or maybe, uh, yeah, my senior year. But basketball and track and cross country were our big, our big things. Were you an athlete? I was. Okay. Um, strange enough, as an artist, I also am a rare breed that I lettered in sports. Um, yeah. Well rounded. <laughs> I, I'm five foot six. I I played basketball poorly. Um, I I played soccer for about fourteen years. I ran cross country. I I mean I was okay but I was never one of the leaders of the pack or anything. And our school actually had gone in one state a few times when I was in high school. So um, from my understanding, I believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe one of the guys that we ran with ended up training for the Olympics. And most of them went to school and college under scholarships for running. So um, I guess by sheer act, you know, uh, accident. I ended up in cross country. I played basketball. I was a gymnast until I was 16, okay. um, which was not offered by the school, but it, I did a, you know, like an more, outside yeah. Yeah. I had to travel in order to do the stranger ex, you know, extracurricular activities. Totally get it. <laughs> but I was in pet band and jazz band and I mean, geez, we're, we're going back some time here. But. Yeah, this is this is good. We're, we're working our memories. <laughs> See how stable they are. Yeah, they're not. But yeah, I mean, I that's the kind of luxury. One of the rare luxuries of living in a small town was the idea of a clique wasn't really as big as it is, say, here in the city uh, because the homecoming king and queen were also basketball stars and played in the band you know like it crossed platforms right. quite often because there weren't enough people to screw you know to to move around wow there i'm blown away ben and i graduated together ah. what do we have four four eighty five something like that yeah it was a huge huge class so that's a big when class we started, it was it was oh, yeah. 600 600 and something yeah yeah Wow. They had to they had to rearrange the schedule for our freshman class because there were so many of us. They couldn't they couldn't have us dine with the upperclassmen. So we had I think we went in at what like nine and went till three thirty, something like that. So it was completely separate. Yep. Staggered wow. schedule. Yeah, staggered lunches, the whole thing. How long were your guys' classes? Oh gosh. Now you're making us so long uh, <laughs> Well, there's a reason behind asking that because right at that period, they were when one they were trying to switch from like period classes to like a block, block you know, or black or yeah. I, I want to say maybe fifty minutes. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, I, I want to say maybe fifty minutes. Yeah. yeah, I can't imagine teaching a class in forty-eight minutes. To be honest, like yeah. Um, a while ago, I was teaching at two different colleges, and four-hour classes was sometimes, you know, seemed like you couldn't get all the information in, you know, 
and so 48 minutes <laughs> you take attendance for 15 of those minutes you know yeah they, you just don't take attendance that's all <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> not anymore anyway you know I didn't, I didn't have that luxury. Here's the other problem is that when you are a loud individual, as I was, um, you what? can't shut up. Ben. You can't skip like all these people that, that got the art of skipping class down. I was too obnoxious, obnoxious in class. They would miss me. Not yeah. Oh, yeah. But they're like, why is it so quiet? Oh, thank Teacher's God. Teacher's like, boy, we got a lot done today. What was up with that? Oh, that's why. Where is she? Yeah. yeah. I was the same. I mean, I was also pretty precocious. I'm, I'm putting my coffee down. What you're not seeing is I have this baby-sized table that is provided for me to put my laptop on, but it is like that big, and it's, it's not, I don't feel safe with my coffee, so I'm putting this on the floor. <laughs> I mean, if you, you know, if you just have to go, just go, you know, that's cool. We'll just talk. I just think it's weird that I'm like doing the whole, like, hold on. Fine. I was the same. I mean, I was a pretty precocious kid and I think I would have made way too much noise in a class for anybody to, and plus with only 56 people in your entire class, you're 156th of a person, actually 146th because 10 of them went to vocational school, so your percentage so you'd be yeah that i didn't think about that it's, and if not they probably know your family well enough to find out where you are immediately. oh yeah yeah my dad has 10 brothers and sisters oh, so i have two sisters okay. my younger sister was is is much much younger than i am so she would have been in elementary school so it wouldn't have been like i graduated wow. high school she was six or seven. Oh my gosh. Maybe not even that old. That's a huge um, gap. Yeah, well, my older sister and I are 15 months apart. Okay. So my parents were like, yeah, we're gonna wait a little bit and have babysitters on hand before, you know. Yeah, that's pretty smart. smart. Play. <laughs> they call it what, Irish twins or something like that, yeah. where you're so close in age. That's, that's, ouch, yeah. Mm-hmm. Not quite the news you want to get with a three-month-old baby. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, yeah, mom found out right away and, you know, uh, but that helped, like, we were in a lot of the same things together. And so whether we liked it or not, we were in, in, in school together yeah. quite often in the same groups and the same classes sometimes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, so, so small town. How and when did art begin for you? Art wasn't really an occupation and still really isn't. Um, it's, I often joke that uh, we are near Wapakoneta. I don't know if you know where that is, but that's the hometown of Neil Armstrong. That's where he was born. Yeah. There's a, a little, a really nice gem of a museum there. It's small, it's not like Kosai or anything, but. Yeah. Um, dedicated to him, but I often joke that more people know what an astronaut does than what an artist does. Um, so I was going to go into science of some sort. You know, I had, I had been looking into schools for uh, physics. Mm -hmm. I always did pretty well in science, well, really well in science, and so that was an option. 
and there was a guy who graduated a couple years ahead of me and subsequently maybe the year after that decided to go to Columbus College of Art and Design. They're more on the commercial side. Um, so I, I was looking at a bunch of different schools for science and stuff. And since I was rather gifted in the arts, I took it upon myself to kind of look at some of these schools. And my art teacher, really lovely man, but I mean, he's kind of working with as little information about the arts as he can. Just was like, yeah, these other guys have kind of gone to this, maybe it's a commercial school, I'm not sure. So my girlfriend at the time and I went and visited um, the school and I got a really large scholarship to go there. And that makes up your mind pretty quickly, you know. You're like, oh, okay, maybe. Oh, you uh, maybe. I'll see. I'll be with you. Yeah, sure. I mean, I was floored. I mean, I had no idea. I had no idea what I was getting into for one. So, um, I had always wanted to do art as a career, but I had one of the weird things about being an adult is you can look backwards and go, I had no idea what I was doing. You know, like. I had a plan as an adult that was like a very young adult's plan. I'm going to go to the school and become an artist. At that time, I really didn't like a lot of contemporary artwork, which I love now. Um, I hadn't had a lot of exposure to what the job of an artist is. And most, most people have no idea what it, uh, an artist does all day long, you know? And so, being offered a, a financial award of some large amount makes you reconsider like, oh man, you know, this is a real thing, a real possibility. Yeah. So um, I was fortunate that I had a couple of aces up my sleeve at that time that I didn't really realize I had. But yeah, our art wasn't an occupation there. It still really isn't. It's more of design or, I mean, I don't want to talk badly about the town because I, I've always liked that sensibility still kind of in me, but ultimately, you know, charging a couple thousand dollars for a piece of artwork and, and offering that as a price tag there is just not doable at the moment, you know? And so navigating my way to a city that understood a little bit more of the depth and maybe it was more like opening myself to a space and a city that understands way more than I did. Yeah. And and going, what is this? What is it? What is the career? What does it look like? Yeah. And I needed a place to learn and, and grow. And so that's how I kind of found myself in Columbus for a while. Well, you're you're actually talking to another CCAD grad who married a CCAD grad. So awesome. I figured you guys would have and it's not me. I don't <clears throat> no, it's not me. Um yeah. Yep. So what did you graduate in? Uh, well, I graduated in 2016. So, yeah, yeah you're right. No, 2006. So, you graduated in 2006? I sure did. Yep. So we would have been there. I graduated in 2004. Okay. Yeah. Well, where were you? I was in uh, media studies, time-based media, uh, ah. was, uh, animation, film. Uh, my wife was there as well. Uh, we both worked on computer animated films and stuff like that. And, Wonderful. Um, yeah, graduated in winter, right? 
yeah, you know, winter. And so kind of a more non-traditional route through college for both of us, but yeah. yeah. I would have, so in 2005, I would have left to go to get my master's at University of Cincinnati. So I was in Cincinnati for two years and then I was teaching there for a little bit and then commuting and teaching at CCAD in 2007. So there's a bizarre overlap where we just missed each other by yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's, uh, it, and well, and like this, the way the school was built, and I don't know if it's still kind of built this way, uh, but it's, it was very much like different areas. Like there was like the, the more illustration, that sort of thing. There was the graphic and ad design and, and, you know, even photography and videography and that sort of thing was separated out a little bit more. So, you know, was, yeah. And they were also preparing for that hybridization at that yeah. time too. So they were kind of changing yeah. up the structure a lot. You're talking about a swath of time that they were really changing the, the way. It was a very transition transitionary period for the yeah. school in general because it was kind of going from that old school that's what i started at. i started in 98 so I, I took the very long route through art school so uh but uh yeah and it was when i started going there it was still very much the kanzani way of doing things yeah the bauhaus kanzani yeah and, and just the really hardcore like two years of solid like art history art history like i still have the book over here because i had to carry the thing around and it was like that thick and weighed about yeah. you know 25 pounds so yeah and a lot of that stuff and it, it it changed a lot after that but yeah it's yeah i mean that it's a way that i think higher education has changed a lot you're talking about a very special time in higher education where whether it's ccad or any other college there's you can take that metric on any school during the last 10, 15 years and say wildly different from the start of that 15 year period to now. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, I mean, and I mean, by nature of just how technology has evolved and everything, how quickly it has too. And, yeah. you know, the fact that when I started school, you know, you still needed to carry books with you in general. And, you know, yeah. now it's kind of a different thing. You don't really need to have the books if you've got a, a phone or an iPad or a laptop or whatever it is. So, you know. I was talking to a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago, and I said I would mention the zip drives that we had to use at CCAD, and they had no idea what I was talking about. Like, yep, oh. yeah, these big zip disks that were. Yeah. I, it was like 128 megabyte. What was it? Yeah. Or it was some. Yeah, 256 megabyte or something. 256, like that. I think. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so 144. Like infinite amount of space, but it was nothing. You know. Oh yeah. I mean, I have Illustrator files now that are that big, you know, 3D <laughs> rendering files that are like 10 oh, yeah. of those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, we shoot 4K video at my studio. So it's like, you know, one, you know, five minute clip is, you know, you know, a couple of gigs worth of footage. And I mean, it's like that be well exceeded one of those discs at this point. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm just dipping my toes in the 4K realm and I'm, my hard drive right away is 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 uh sucking some some serious power down for that <laughs> it's crazy like i i've gotten to the point where it's like i love 4k and i love shooting in 4k but i don't love storing it oh yeah <laughs> I'm i mean, less precious with my raw materials and everything like people are like you want to come out and shoot a commercial i'm like yeah sure i'll come out and afterwards i'm like okay so you're good with this right i'm just going to delete everything we shot <laughs> so yeah i mean storage i think I have this conversation from time to time about like storage costs, you know, part of like 
yeah it's insane I mean, and especially if you create a lot and it's like all of my stuff is digital i mean like you you do a lot of physical stuff and that's that's awesome you know but like all of mine is digital so it's like everything that i've ever created has to be stored on a hard drive somewhere and and then you get paranoid because hard drives don't last forever and you want to upgrade to whatever the next thing is and next thing you know you're spending a ton of money on dropbox and cloud storage and i know the internet doesn't die you know right so. right mine's physical storage which also costs a pretty penny well, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah 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 see that's why you just be an actor and you do the work and then you let someone else take care of everything afterward be like cool i'll see what it's that thanks I, well, going back to what we were talking about, I once upon a time was in an acting group in high school and middle school and stuff. I was in uh, the musicals in high school and stuff. So. What did you do? I was in Oliver. I was in high school. I was the Artful Dodger. In, nice. In Oliver. That's a good role. Oh, it was. It was wonderful. Um, I was in Bye Bye Birdie. Okay. Did a lot of one act plays and then i was in this group um uh the sock and buskins it was like a traveling kind of like amateur acting the claim of fame i think kevin bacon was a sock and buskins like person nice. but you know how they use like they use anything they can to get some ground traction you know you know what we still do that's actors still name drop more than they should i'm they sure he was like 12 when he was in it or something <laughs> That's, I always, I always laugh when I hear Kevin Bacon because there is, I don't know if he was a, a representative or a senator at one point, there was a dude named Kevin Bacon, not the actor. Right. Um, but I knew that this person existed and I mean, it, it's probably been 10 years now, but somebody was soliciting door to door for Kevin Bacon. And I don't, I don't know how upset or pissed off I made the guy, but I just laughed for 10 minutes straight. And just oh, no. saying 10 degrees, 10 degrees. Oh my gosh, Kevin Bacon. Yeah, uh, so I don't think they were super pleased with that. But I, I think if your name is Kevin Bacon and you're not the Kevin Bacon, you should probably change your name. Your name is well, Bacon or, in general. I think you, you're you're in the funny zone. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I have a friend whose last name is Bacon and he owns it because he knows. You know, yeah. There's no way around that. No. But even with Kevin Bacon, I mean, I don't think about the crunchy, delicious morning food. I think no. in the actor. I also, <laughs> but when you come around to my door for some senator, then I then I go to crunchy, delicious breakfast food. I don't know what the change was. I don't know. I, I wonder like if this be Bacon's new tagline is crunchy, delicious breakfast food. <laughs> I wonder if the senator also gets extra votes just from people who can say they want to say that they voted for Kevin Bacon. Bacon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That slogan writes itself for sure. Yeah, vote for bacon, yeah. you know. You're the voice of vote for bacon. <laughs> be the like the audio tagline that comes in. It just seems yeah. like it's very fitting. Not just a crunchy, delicious breakfast food. No. But he has a good. He has a good like uh, commercial I, voice. You I, know, I like do a the... lot of them. So. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's he's the the voice actor. Yeah. Well, actor. I would say I read words off a page until I get it right the first oh. time. And then I'm like, yeah, that's good enough. So to be you know. fair, so do I. So let's see. <laughs> well, but you have to get it right on memory. I don't even have to do that. I just read it on the page. So. Sometimes. 
How do you confront your own voice in audio? Because I can't stand my own voice I in audio. I have listened to my own voice. When I was in high school and middle school, I was a mobile DJ. So I've had cans on and listening to my own voice for like my entire life. Like oh, okay. I'm more comfortable listening to my own voice than like right now I'm not wearing headphones. Like I, I to me, like I don't sound as good right now. I'm not as sharp as I could be. And I'm also uh, fighting a little bit of a cold too. So, but no, oh I'm, man, I'm that's... 100% used to it. I hate hearing it in commercials that I do because I do a lot of, I do a, like at least like four commercials a month and like it's always my voice going. It's like this month the Buyers Airport Subaru get the all new, you know, whatever. Yeah, it is. yeah, yeah. And, you know, when I hear that, I'm like, there it is again. I'd rather have somebody <laughs> like Krista or somebody who's like, a, you know, a different voice other than mine, but I just get tired of hearing it more than anything. I think yeah. it's. I think it's a matter of knowing that it's your voice and just having to be okay with that. Yeah. And you learn like the peculiarities of your own voice. Like I have a thing, like before I do a percussive, like a B or an M or something like that, I get a little bit of a mm beforehand. So if I go buyers, it's a little bit of a mm buyers beforehand. Yeah. And, and I, I've learned to kind of try to fight around that as much as I can, but you know, it's... you can't always do it. But even like we teach, I mean, you, everybody has their, their little things that they do without, without realizing it. Like, so I, I, I work with high school students often getting them prepared for college auditions, which theater auditions are a nightmare for children, um, for, or for seniors going in. I shouldn't call them children. They're more mature than I am. But if they, what I've noticed, <laughs> let me scoot back here. A lot, of, a lot of my kids will sing and they'll be singing like this. And I'm like, that sounds great. Are you holding a beach ball? Because they don't even realize that they're singing like this. Or if they do the old fashioned, la, you know, and I tell them, okay, so let me know how often in real life you actually do that maneuver. They're like, oh. Arms out wide. I, I talk in meetings and stuff like that all the time. Well, the problem is, is that I actually do. So that's not really fair. <laughs> But I, yeah, I think if you have a flair for the dramatic, you know, you, an, animated, your hands are probably part of your vocabulary as well. So that's, that is the, the challenge with them. But, it, you know, I think as far as hearing your own voice or seeing yourself, it's just understanding that this is part of it. But it's also you have different voices for different people. And that's what I explain to kids. You know, so if you're saying something to a teacher versus something to a friend, it's going to sound very different. Yeah. You know, the, the conversations that you have with different people. So it's like you can attune yourself to, okay, I'm going to turn on my radio voice right now or my interview voice or my uh, professional voice, you know? Yeah. As opposed to Arnold Schwarzenegger the, impression, you know, if that yeah. situation calls for that, you know, do you have an Arnold impression? I've never heard this. If you have one. Oh, really? Okay. Do you have one. I do. Okay, you can't leave us there. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well done you for calling it out. That's your own fault. I know. Now I did it to myself. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, Wait. I don't know. What, what, do you, what do you want me to say is Arnold Schwarzenegger? What does Arnold Schwarzenegger say, Benjamin? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Rubber baby, rubber baby buggy bumpers or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> There's, I kind of picked it up from like there's a, an old web video called Arnold's Pizza Shop, where <laughs> amazing like outgoing voiceover message from like a, a pizza shop that was supposed to be run by Arnold Schwarzenegger and he puts nine millimeter bullets on the pizza and you want broccoli on the pizza I'll punch it through your face because what the hell is broccoli and 
It's amazing. Go look up Arnold's Pizza Shop. I Arnold's. promise you, you will be happy with it. Well, I can tell you I didn't wake up this morning thinking I was going to have a uh, Arnold conversation with Arnold. So that's, <laughs> yeah. that's good. I like it's to bust that out when I'm running game for D&D. &D uh, I, I had my players fight an Arnold Schwarzenegger flesh golem at one point. He's walked in and he's like, what are you doing here? I'm going to kill you. And they're all like, holy shit. So, yeah. What's weird is I've been to like Switzerland and he's from Austria, um, right. but uh, I've been to Switzerland and I did not hear anyone that talked like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> but Arnold is a huge friend of Columbus. So I mean, oh, yeah. like, I've, I've met him a couple of times and he's, he's ridiculously nice. Uh, yeah. And it, it, it like goes against a lot of the things that as a grow up and growing up as a kid and thinking like, Oh yeah. What this person he's might be too. like. He's like yeah, crazy so smart. smart guy. Yeah. So smart. Yeah. And he's, he's Austrian, good. isn't he? Yeah, he's Austrian. Yeah. Yeah, he's Austrian. I did not go to Austria though, but I wish I would have. Oh, it's beautiful. Have you been there? Yeah, I wasn't very old, so I'm not gonna talk much about it, but <laughs> my mom is an opera singer. Um, and so she won a competition to study, we, we lived in Denver at the time, but she won a, an opera competition to study in Graz at the Graz Institute, wow. I can't remember the name of it. So she was there for two months and we got to visit for a couple of weeks. Again, real young, don't remember. I mean, if we can't go back to high school memories, let's not go back any further. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but now I, I hadn't been overseas and hadn't been after that until I went to Kenya about seven years ago. So we flew through Zurich, which was lovely to see the, the Alps again. But yeah, but you've gotten to do a lot of traveling though for work, haven't you? Yeah, I was not a traveler growing up. My, my family, like my family's probably on their way to North Carolina right now. And that's the extent of our traveling. Um, didn't really grow up doing a lot of traveling. I hadn't been flying a plane until I graduated college. Um, and so I didn't really know much about traveling and and once once you see some an experience what the world has to offer i i've been bitten by the travel bug and i've had the very amazing fortune of being part of my job is, is traveling and i can use part of the, the travel for my job if that makes sense like absolutely i can find a way to travel and then also use that as my job and the information that i like the 18 year old me would love to know what I'm doing now, but it would have also been a totally different person at 18 versus 38 or whatever, you know, so. Did you say, or whatever, like you don't know how old you are? Is that oh, I, I said 38 and the or, or whatever was like, am I 38? Yes. Well, if you, you get to that range and it's like, how old am I? I yeah. 40 something, I don't know. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. irrelevant. But we also, we, I had this conversation with Ralph Scott the other day in that this year, if you have a birthday during this year, it doesn't count. So yeah. I actually did not turn 40 this year. So I'm still 39, which is cool. So are you going to celebrate it twice? I mean, that's a weird one okay. to like, okay. Oh, absolutely. I'm a Leo. So we do everything out of control anyway. So, oh yeah. Oh, there, there will be several parties. If I miss it next year, watch out. Mine is on Earth Day, so I always say it's my Earth Day. The Earth Day, I like that. And it's, it's also May? April, April 22nd. April 22nd, okay. 
it's also on my uh, grandpa's birthday. So growing up, I really didn't have a birthday. I would go to somebody else's birthday. And like my parents would celebrate it. But if I, like my grandpa was a very special man. He was a really cool dude. I went camping and a lot of stuff with him. But uh, he was the only one during that birthday song that would go, and Derek. Like, and every year, every year, it was like, oh, I didn't know it was your birthday. Oh, I'm so sorry. Aww. I guess no big deal. It's just, just a birthday. So. But that's, that makes me so. Oh, our family was big on birthdays. Like it was, everybody's day was, it was your day. It's a special day. And I've now put that into my family. My husband's the youngest of four. And his birthday is January 17th, which I think has been labeled as the most depressing day of the year. Um, Cause it's two and a half weeks after Christmas or after new year and all the credit card bills from Christmas have come in and yep. the weather is usually complete and utter shit. And so it's like, yeah, his, so he's hated his birthday, but I've made, you know, we've, we've grown to make it a happier thing, but I always feel bad you know kids that have birthdays that fall on other days you know all the september 11th kids and like, oh yeah well yeah. everyone that i know has a birthday near or on a holiday um and i have had an instant conversation that's birthdays near thanksgiving how do you celebrate it how do you make it special yeah if my mom was sitting next to me she would want me to say how wonderfully well birthdays were celebrated because you know they they tried really hard to make make yeah. that a thing but um i have since learned how birthday some families are like like birthday month yeah no not really in our family my older sister is january 14th so it's right next to the yeah. christmas thing my younger sister's is august 6th so it's right before school or during the entry to school. Mine's on Earth Day. So like for a, a while in elementary school, there during the late 80s and early 90s, the rainforest conundrum was a really big oh, yeah. thing. So we would have Earth Day parties with cupcakes and stuff. So I would get cupcakes at school on my birthday, but it was like a tree cupcake. But I also love the woods, so. <laughs> my so favorite yeah my favorite holiday is arbor day Aww. you're an out outdoorsy folk i am extremely outdoorsy i i wouldn't say that i'm like bushcrafting my way through the world or anything but uh, virtually every day i try to spend some time in the woods it was a product of um i think it was always there. I camped and stuff with the kid and, and stuff. But after moving to the city about five years or so, I realized that I just didn't have nature in my life. And I didn't know that. Yeah. Like, I was so busy learning how to be an adult right. that I had kind of forgot about that. And doing a little bit of self-searching, you know, you're, you're like, oh man, I'm missing all the green in the world and I'm living in this concrete jungle and it was very different to me. Now, Columbus seems like a small town, but I mean, coming from what I described to the city was like going to some mega metropolis. And so after a little while, I started to seek out woods and stuff so I could have that still in my life. And 
you know, it, it's always been very crucial and knowing when to appreciate it was a very valuable asset to like becoming a little bit more sane in a very crazy world, you know. So are you, are you a hiker? Are you a, an observer? Do you sit? Do you meditate? When do you listen to music? I mean, what sort of things do you do in that space? Are you by yourself? Are you with others? Like, I spend a lot of time by myself, but yeah, I mean, uh, hiking with a friend or two would, is completely, you know, a loving and interesting experience. Um, I do not bring music with me. So a lot of my artwork is, is thought about and inspired by yeah. my time out in the woods. I am very much like a little kid. I'll, I don't stay on the, the paths very often. I just kind of forage through and hike a lot. I do a lot of hiking, walking, whatever you want to call it, you know. Moving up the feet forward. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm climbing a mountain, I'm climbing a mountain. If I'm just going through like a little a woods in the side of a city park, kind of it's all nurturing to me yeah but i i pick up sticks i look at fungus i squeeze things and touch them and yeah. do all the things that you you know kids typically do i never lost and i i'm a very outgoing person and i i feel like there is a certain group of um, outgoing people that have this tendency to be when they're not being extremely um, extremely outgoing, they're very introverted. Mm -hmm. And I spend hours a day just thinking, I mean, just staring at stuff. So very often when I'm in the woods, I'm just gonna be like sitting, staring, and thinking about stuff, yeah. picking up leaves and crunching them. I'm very tactile. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> it's very strange to explain what a weird thing this is, you know, but I also think that it's a very human thing to do that a lot of us just don't do anymore. And I know when I feel bad, it's because I don't have a lot of that time to kind of experience the world like that. Yeah. Very tactile, tactile learner. Um, Makes sense. Well, so I, yeah. I mean, that I think that kind of encapsulates artists in general. You know what I mean? And that, that we do things that may not be perceived by natural human behavior, but actually are very much natural human behaviors that we've probably been told to grow up and get over. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, the waste, you're wasting time kind of. Yeah. And it's you're like, not no. done. You're not turning something in or, or producing something right there. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think people who value the outdoors value that aspect um, that it's not a waste of time it has a purpose and there's a cost that not doing it is also associated and um but like i grew up outside we lived in a little wooded lot i mean uh, my my it's my first job is loosely a lumberjack and, and you're okay I'm, 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 I'm a lumberjack and that's okay. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do it. I had I, to do it. Sorry. Well, so like I grew up with a wood burning fireplace. Yeah. Uh, we had like small baseboard heating and stuff, but for general purpose in the winter, um, especially at 
one of our earlier houses, it was always a wood burning fireplace. So, I mean, I learned how to use a chainsaw. Let's just say an age that's way too young to learn how to use a chainsaw. <laughs> not gonna get my dad in trouble. Um, the, and to this day, the only exercise I enjoy doing is splitting wood. And like, that was my, you know, I, I kind of joke and say my first job was a lumberjack. It's not like Canadian uh, forestry or anything, but uh, before I started working at Bob Evans as uh, a server and, uh, and a um, ho uh, bus boy, before I did that, I cut down trees with my dad. Yeah. And we needed the firewood and other people needed their you know, a tree that had fallen during the winter or something like that cut down. So there's this close relationship with the woods and and wood in general and the weird dichotomy between when to, to cut down a tree and when not to. Which huh. like they're in forestry there are people who cut down trees for a living who are conservationists. Yeah. And it's a weird dichotomy. Huh. Um, yeah, I know that. yeah, in order to grow a tree the tallest and best that it can be, you also have to make sure that it has the right setting, the right sunlight, the right fertile ground, and not to, to starve out the roots from other plants. Yeah. Or if you have this really old tree that has a disease, and you don't want the tree next to it to get that disease, you have to cut it down to keep the greater good from you know, being ruined. Interesting. Yes, I'm a city girl. I'm proving myself more and more throughout this conversation. So. Well, I'm also, this is also bizarre too, because like, I'm, I've also lived in the city for 20 years, you know? So like, I have to be careful from overreach. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it makes so much, you know, I was, I was actually talking with Ben before this was like, I, I did work at the art museum. I think I told you that mm -hmm. just as, I mean, I showed people where the bathroom was. That was more or less the extent of my <clears throat> arts job. But, you know, it's it's always one of those things that coming at art as an actor, I always feel like, oh, am I missing something? Am I, am I, am I not appreciating this the right way? And Ben, you said something along the lines of like, if you look at art and you feel something, then you're doing it right. I mean, do you, would you agree with that, Derek? Like elaborating on that idea as a- Oh, of course. Part of the game of being a visual artist is you're leading people to a conclusion that you're hoping they get. Yeah. But each person has that endpoint in a different spot. Like you could get in a serious intellectual debates, how when is spelling out too much? Yeah. And pushing that into more ethereal, it's a color field or something like that. To some people that turns them off, but to other people that's what opens the world of arts to them to begin with. And so if they can find an appreciation on any level, then they've earned the right to sit at the table, right? Um, having said that, you know, part of our job is to articulate to the best that we can what we don't want them to get out of it and what we do. And that don't get out of it is actually a, a very underrepresented thing. Yeah. Because if you're saying something very important and you're playing fast and loose on how 
how someone might perceive it, they might walk away with a completely opposite thought process and it might make you look, you know, uh, like a monster or something. So, but sure, I think, I, I think anybody who's spending the time to look at your work is taking time out of their valuable day and they have earned the right to, to appreciate it and what makes them feel good. I would say my focus is more on the people who don't spend that time, you know? I'm not gonna poke at someone who's taking time out of their day to look at my work, whether to dislike it or to like it. Yeah. It's the people who walk right by it and I'm like, ah, you know, yeah. that's more what I would have an issue with. And you do, you do a lot of different pieces of, of different natures and lots of different styles. I'm, awesome exhibit. I'm so sad that it's not normal oh, timing, COVID. I know. You know, we picked a great time to be artists. I'll just go ahead and say that. <laughs> well, you got a lot of information to use. So I guess. True. It's, as I sit in my theater building with nothing happening, staging oh, yeah. utter silence. But I loved the idea of lots of different pieces and lots of different works. You're, tell me the name of the piece with the violin. So that's um, Absolute Thread. Gorgeous. Thank you. Thank Gorgeous. You. Like, and I think, excuse me, I think that's what I love about, about the museum. And CMA does such a great job with this anyway, of where, how things are laid out, oh, where, yeah. where you can walk by or you can stand. And um, in the time that I did teach there, we did, we did a couple collaborations with theater and art, which was super cool. They teach you how to look at more than just what do I see and to really intently dig into it and start to give yourself those questions of, well, what, what is that? Why is that there? Why is that there? Why is this color prominent? And so it made it feel a lot less threatening in a way. Yeah. Or pretentious maybe is the word that I want to use. It was, it was, it's available to all. Yeah, Tyler can um, and worked with it. Yeah, Tyler's great. He worked with a team of people to curate, and he, I, in my opinion, he does a great job of curation, and that's its own field. You know, yeah. maybe you know you've known this also from being in the arts, but curation is its own form and field of artwork that you can get a whole degree in museum curation. And, um, there's a design to the space and a design to the room, and there's so much like real um, academics behind why and where to place things that people often realize, don't realize like that's its own field of expertise. And um, while laying out the show, we were trying to find a place for my robotics piece and the violin I had dropped off way earlier. And uh, the stand that it's on is the same one they use for the Paganini violin. Oh my gosh. And it was so, it was such a sweet moment where they're like, are you okay with using the stand? Like a $16 million, I think is the price tag of that violin was on that stand. I, yeah, I mean, it's fine for, for my oh, right, I guess. You know, Yeah, I mean. Six, you know, Paganini's virtuoso violin is, is housed in the same stand, but it's weird, right? Like I appreciate that somebody would even ask me. Right, yeah. If that was okay, you know? And 
but yeah, I mean, thank you. Is a that each one of my pieces has a pretty elaborate story and you know a narrative using very little information is kind of how I do things. Editing out all that's not necessary to tell a story and. That violin was gifted to me from what is now one of my dearest friends. Um, and uh, it's an old violin. It's, it's from Dresden. It was a family friend gifted, you know, tried to figure out how to fix that violin. And, and they were like, well, we have this artist who might be able to create something of actual beauty using it that may or may not have um, the ability to live an hour life. And that's a huge responsibility yeah. to, to no sit problem. in front of, yeah. <laughs> I'm in another country with limited resources and I have this old expensive violin sitting in front of me and I'm like, I have to do something really good yeah. or else I've desecrated this beautiful instrument. And violins are works of art anyway. And luthiers are some massively skilled people. I would never want to ruin such a precious like, gift and uh, you know, give it another life. It's, it's a huge responsibility. Right. Wow. Do you, okay, so here's my question, especially with your robotics piece, because you had to transport those. How do you do, I mean, I think I would be scared to freaking death. Oh, I was. Oh, like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what a great question. What a great question. <laughs> Ah, okay. I don't want to oh. give I don't want to give you a heart attack like rethinking the whole process. So if this oh, is no. pain, I'm not going to bring it up. No, you segued into something that is actually very valuable. Um, that piece, I I took almost a year to make and design, and I wrote a grant before COVID to get materials. I had to build this project in my head as a theory before, and and I had to write a, a materials list on what I needed for this project, which is difficult when it's not like a canvas and paint and three brushes, you know. I'm yeah. talking like a bolt of this size and dimension, uh, four of these types of circuit boards, two of these wires, an amplifier, you know. And I had to, in theory, create something that if I didn't get the crane, I wouldn't be able to build yeah. um, unless I really scoured out of my bank account. And I was very fortunate that the Greater Columbus Arts Council awarded me a, a grant for that. And so as I was designing it, I have an SUV and I, I've made large, last year I, I had an 18 foot airplane oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that lit up anytime uh, interna International Space Station was overhead. And part of this building process is something as utilitarian as figuring out how to build it in parts that will fit in my SUV. <laughs> so I designed that robotic piece, yeah. um, the circadian machine in a 3D rendering software program and using parametric mathematical design principles, I was able to grow and shrink that design to fit literally into like the maximum space in my, in my truck. Oh, wow. And the design principles were strange because you're using like, if I turn it sideways, will it fit through my door? 
how many is the minimum amount of bolts do I need to take this apart in order to fit in the back of my SUV? So I built it in two halves. The crown of it is small and the, the base of it is like two inches shy of the top of my SUV. So I have to take the crown of it off and then put the, the base in and then put the crown in uh, on the side. And I think it's 12 volts is the minimum number I could figure to take this thing apart, oh put it back together. But it's also a very, it's a fragile, scratchable material. Yeah. Um, it's a mirrored surface. So any of the viewers are listening, it's a, it's a geometric pod yeah. that is mirrored on the inside and the outside. And because it's bolted together and it's using metal hardware, it's a rigid sort of like, it, it's pretty robust in its build. Yeah. But it's also made with mirrored plexiglass. So imagine a CD and how easy it is to scratch a CD. <laughs> That's, it's a giant 24 sided CD. <laughs> no. Uh, so it's, it, that was kind of the, the thing. And then also the electronics, you know, in Ohio, it rains all the time. And the show was originally supposed to go up during the summer and it ended up going up now. So it was raining the day late. I had to load it up. And, and so it was, but those are challenges I'm willing to take on because what a fortunate thing that I could have a show at a museum, like, yeah part of the job right? so for that project you i mean you you built all the individual components you programmed the whole thing with the lights and everything and i mean that that's an insane level of like both left and right brainedness which i re i know isn't actually a thing but still like most i i don't do math like math is not something that fits in my head so I, oh my I, gosh there's so much math in this thing you're right no yeah i mean you're right and there's 50 pages of code. There's 50 pages of code that I wrote. Um, and- That's a lot of code too. That's a lot of code. It is. It took more time to write the code than the bill by a substantial, substantial amount. Um, and, you know, it's like any form of artwork. You, you look at back at it and you can go, oh man, I could have done that it's better, right? You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, but when do you stop? You know, and at yeah. some point, yeah. Delivery day. Sitting in a museum. You <laughs> yeah. <know>? yeah. <laughs> I think it's a pretty good answer. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I would answer that by saying, um, like I said, I was going to go into science, and I've been building like electronic stuff since I was a kid. But we've been very fortunate in the last ten years that cost of actual robotic stuff as opposed to just like crap that you take apart from you know yeah. a coffee maker or something and piece together which is kind of what i did for many years actual microcontrollers and robotics parts are reasonably priced and the community of open source um, codes helps anyone who wants to learn i truly believe that if you wanted to do this it really just takes an insane amount of concentration and dedication. But I do think anyone can learn how to do the bare bones stuff on these things, things because they're teaching them in schools now. I mean, 
I would love to say that it's a special skill that I have that nobody else does, but um, two of my cousins were telling me that they were learning through a, like a, a very uh, like game-based interface how to code and program and the languages that I'm programming in. Yeah. And so my hope is that I look like a total idiot in 10 years because some kid out there who took a you know Minecraft game apart and put it back together knows way more than I do. And that, that's success to me. You know, like that would be, we have learned. I, I just want more people to realize how closely connected arts and sciences really are. And for whatever reason, I'm not part of this conversation, but for whatever reason in elementary schools and, and high schools, the STEM versus STEAM conversation is a hotly debated thing. Oh, yeah. I've never understood that. To me, I'm like, you have to learn how to problem solve. So I have the exact amount of like grunt in me when I hear science and arts aren't connecting from both sides of the platform. You know, if someone who's an engineer is like, oh, art's such a fabulous thing. You and I would all, we would already have that built-in nature. But I would say the exact same thing when I hear the arts community talk about how they don't need to do any of these critical thinking using that kind of the, the mindset. Simply because I can tell you it's helped me out doing my taxes or you know, negotiating a contract with someone who has so much more clout than I'm bringing to the table and who's expecting that they're just talking to quote unquote an artist. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, you will never win that one with me. As soon as you put me in those air quotes, I will come to the table with a totally different person. <laughs> You'll see the full wrath of intellectual property there. <laughs> Good. That's, That's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and getting, you know, so much conversation has come up, especially in this time of COVID, and I'm sure that you guys have experienced this as well, of like, um, how much do I have to pay you for your craft and how much can I just get from you? Oh yeah. How can I get away with paying? How little can I get away with paying? Right. Yeah, often we get that question is like, I really like this, what's the, what's the bargain price? No, and so, <laughs> no. It's yeah. Not. Yeah, and I, I understand where they're coming from. You know, art is not a career that I ever joined to make a ton of money in, you know, and I would never <laughs> preach the idea that I make a ton, ton of money, but I don't do it for that. I do it because I love the idea making and I love the process. It's a job that I enjoy. And as long as I can, I'm gonna make money doing a job that I enjoy. And so part of that, part of that unique cycle of this career is that you're the creator of the material. You're the marketer of the material. You're the executor of the material. And then you're the, sole reason that that material is either a success or a failure yeah you know and if i go in if i go into a regular job they give me tasks to complete that benefits and that's a, a reasonable way to make a living you have a, a paycheck that's very constant and you have a lot of securities um but as an advocate for the arts which you know i'm a strong advocate for the arts i like to tell people that there, the way that you make a living at the arts is to ask reasonably priced costs for your work. 
because you can't sustain a lifestyle using bargaining all the time. And it's also, we live in a very sales bloated economy where if you teach people that everything's on sale all the time, they will expect only sale costs. And that is your new level. That's your new cost. And when it's such a luxurious thing to, to even have that conversation because if you're not, if you're starving and you need food or if you need to pay rent, it's very difficult to belly up to the table with a, a big fat no and say, that's not a reasonable price. And so there's a delicate balance in a ballet that you have to both appreciate where they're coming from, but also appreciate where you're coming from. Yeah. And I think that we, I mean, I don't want to speak for everybody, you know, actors in Columbus make so much money as well. <clears throat> but the, the idea of not, you know, what can, what can I do that will fulfill me, but still make money? And how many no's do I have to tell you in order to make that happen for me? Or how long do I have to sit without working? Because it's not, it's not okay. It's not enough. I, how do you place value on your pieces? Monetary value or intrinsic value? Yeah. So I actually have on my website, DerekGill.com, um, I have an artist resource uh, section and it's, you know, articles that I write that I do a lot of research in that are basically how to become an artist and a professional out there. Yeah. And they're ever changing that list gets added to, and, you know, of course there's plenty of topics during COVID time that will be coming up. One of them is how to price your artwork. I wouldn't say that I, in the end all say all, I think it's a utility belt that you need to gain information from different resources. But um, I have a whole series on how to price your work. And it, the kind of initial response is there's no one equation that's going to get you to the right price. There's as many different ways to make arts, there's also that many types of artists. Mm -hmm. So if you're making a small object that is repeatable, you can work on a combination of hourly wage versus. Uh, material costs, right? But if you're making an installation piece that might not be like purchasable in a doesn't match my couch way, um, you have to have a different kind of rubric to follow. Yeah. So, how much does the materials cost? Part of this, okay, so we're building a platform of things you need to think about before you get to the cost and afterwards, right? So, Materials cost needs to always be there. Even if you get the material for free, how do you, if someone wanted to replicate that, build it again, the breaks, insurance value, you need to know how much would that cost if you needed to do that again. Yeah. Right? And that could be something as simple as replacing paint that was given to you for free that you will have to purchase again, or like this airplane that I was, you know, I came by. That's not something I can just go to the grocery store and buy. Oh, come on. Sure you could. Yeah. A foldable three-part airplane. Yeah. Uh, it's everywhere. Everywhere you want to be. And then there's also what level are you? Yeah. Uh, why it doesn't always work to do an hourly wage mm -hmm. is because if you're a beginner at something, it, it will take you longer to do something. And so if it's taking you 40 hours to make something and you're charging 40 hours worth of work, but a professional who's been doing it for 10, 15 years can do it in 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. There's a 
question mark. So this is a balancing you kind of pull from both sides, right? Um, also, if you're a beginner and you're using gold, you're probably going to waste a lot of gold. Yeah. Um, then there's what the market can bear in your area and how, what is your region that you're selling in? Mm. Um, so if, with the internet, it, this is a very interesting question. Um, if I'm selling work at a gallery here in Columbus, but my work is sold everywhere in the world, whether that's online or in person, do I charge with a gallery percentage here or a gallery percentage somewhere else? If I'm taking home, these are all questions that you have to ask. Yeah. And the common public doesn't know that galleries typically take anywhere between 40 and 50% commission, which is crazy. That is a ton. Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, I yeah. get it, but still. Um, there's a hotly debated topic here. Uh, galleries should earn your, their money just like as an artist, I should earn money, right? And so if they are entitled to making, if they sell your work, they should be entitled to make money off of that, that work that they provide. And they have a lot of overhead costs, electricity and rent, to name a few. But insurance is a secret little, uh, you know, yeah. you, know, you have to pay for insurance and all this work and whining and dining clients and all of that stuff. So yeah. they should earn commission, right? They work for it. But if they have, it used to be the older model was a gallery would typically sign eight to 10 artists in what they used to call their stable. And I worked really hard to mitigate that term. Such a derogatory term. So let's call it their artist roster. They used to have eight to 10 artists in their, their roster. And each artist would be given like a solo show uh, once one month and then there might be a holiday or a couple group shows though and so in order to make money they really had to sell only a small group of people's works so a lot of efforts there. Mm -hmm. but if they have a and they would have you sign an exclusivity contract yeah um, and so you couldn't really sell outside of the gallery if, if i know you personally and you see your my work i have to push you to the gallery which then would take commission but now that the internet is there and there's a lot of online sales and the world is, you know, open on that front, it should be re-evaluated. Mm -hmm. If a gallery has a hundred artists on their roster and you're signing an exclusivity clause with them, as an advocate for the artist, not the arts in general, but the artists themselves, I think an evaluation period needs to be done first. Like, I'll pay a lot of commission if they're bringing $200,000 to my door. I mean, geez. But if they sell something once every 10 months, is it good business to type an exclusivity contract? Yeah. No. No, is the answer. So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's this tug and pull, you know. I want the lifestyle and the life cycle of the gallery to exist. I want them to thrive. I want them to be able to exist another day, just like I do with the arts. But I do think a, a new education on how to market your work and how to sell the work and what, what is the commission doing? You know, there are a lot of things that a gallery does on the artist's behalf because the artist simply doesn't want to. It takes a lot of time to be the business person, you know? And 
if they have clients that they feed work and they have a, a ability to continue bringing those clients back, they've earned that right to make that money. It's maybe something that I could do. But if it's also somebody that I know personally in a small community after doing this for 20 years in this community, it makes you start to ask really tough questions. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, I also know them. They knew me before you, you know? Yeah. And, and so I do think there's a new period in the, in the pricing of artwork that needs to be balancing the friendship between the gallery and the artist, balancing between the online sales and the global sales, the residency programs and the grants. You know, it's so changing right now that I do think that it's time for a, a new conversation to be made that benefits everybody. Yeah, and now I think that's oddly COVID has provided those spaces for those conversations to begin because we don't have anything else to do. So it's kind of been nice in a way to see how this wretched disease that keeps everybody away from each other. I'm not bitter at all, if you can tell. No, not at all. No, not at all. Uh, but no, I love it. Darren, thank you so much. We do have to wrap up, but this has been great just to chat and, and hang and talk creativity. I think that that's... I know for me, one of the things that's so hard to miss out on is just creative conversation. So thank you very much. Thank you. I mean, it was a pleasure and I'm really happy that you guys were able to uh, um, make time in your day for me. So So people can check your stuff out online. Yes. If if you go to Derek Gill, that's D-A-R-I-C-G-I-L-L.com. You can see all of my work. And then um, the Columbus Museum of Art, they will be um, rolling out some programming as well um, in the future. You can, when they open back up, you can see four of my paintings that I've done, um, three of which were in Germany. One is about my, my experience and partnership with Cuba. And then I have a robotics installation there that's interactive. Um, and I really think you should check that out. Also, if you are an artist and um, you are looking for a beginning and some tips and tricks along the way, feel free to check them out on my artist resource section. I don't get paid for any of that. That is simply just to help other artists try to make their way through this life. You know, As so. another artist, I can verify it is not the easiest thing to get started. So any advice you can find out there, resources, go, 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 go. Just take yes, the advice. Yes. Thanks for providing. And I should, that makes and I should also... Thank you. Oh, yeah. And I should also say um, a big, big thank you to both the Columbus Museum of Art, the Greater Columbus Arts Council, and the Ohio Arts Council. The Ohio Arts Council and the GCAC, they also have very valuable artist resources. I'm not driving anyone just to me. I want anyone who has options to have options, you know, so. And they made our theater last, so we're thankful for them as well. Very much so. We love you. (laughs) (laughs) well Derek thank you so much happy Thanksgiving we are happy Thanksgiving yeah happy Thanksgiving to you guys too it's a good reminder I got to take the bird out today so this is good timing this worked out well but anyway thank you for thank you for listening to speak easily with Krista Stoffer you can find us on SoundCloud iTunes um computer like google it go to google on computers we are on on computers We, we could have a hot meal. Bacon. Of, the, a, well, the delicious breakfast thing. Okay, now, no, no, no. 
now you're just mocking. So okay. I, I do that. <laughs> <laughs> but join us on any of those platforms. You can find, <laughs> there's this seltzer water. Sorry. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram. Um, I'm trying Twitter. I really don't like it. I don't get it. Nobody knows, needs to know. What's I, I, this morning I was, uh, I was going through Twitter and I was like, God, I haven't really committed myself to this hundred percent. I'm going to probably dive a little bit harder. We're going to dive in. Also partly because there's a lot of people that are on Facebook that are not on Twitter. And that's an appealing thing to me. Honestly. Oh, you're not there. Huh? Hmm. Cool. 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 So yeah, it's weird. People get, people get really religious about which, uh, like media platform they prefer the most. So yeah, oh, I'm a big MySpace fan. There. So that works out. Yeah. Oh, you're the one. Friend, uh, was <laughs> French Ace or something, right? What Friendster. Is Friendster. Oh yeah. Friendster. I, yeah. I don't think I ever did that one. I worked with a guy years ago who created his own social network site called UFace, and I was like, mm, I don't know, that one's gonna catch on, pal. But, yeah. you know. Please tell me it was like N-U-E face, like uh, <laughs> no, a different spelling. N-U-F-A-C-E, and it was like like YouTube and Facebook, but you face. And it was like, face. Hmm. I'm pretty, I, you know what? I should probably look that up right now. It might be huge, so. I'm, I'm, you know, I think it might be what I call people when I can't remember their names. Like, uh, you know, you face. Uh, <laughs> uh. Hey, you face, yeah. You know, if, if it is successful, Derek, you're about to get sued for calling people that. So, yeah, we may want to check up on how popular UFace has become. Yeah, hey, I'm going to start. Uh, uh, if it's not successful, I'm going to do the U with the umlauts, Ooh, the two dots, you're and then hey, you're <laughs> six. Oh, yeah. with the second O has the umlauts, yes. And then yeah, the yeah. A-C-E a with the squiggle above it, yes. Hey, if you face is a popular thing, I'm all, always willing to share more on my artwork on, on you face. So next, this next is an unsponsored thing for you. Uh, hey, you thanks, thanks to our you face community out yes, there. We really you. appreciate yes. you joining us today. We love you face. Keep on you facing, you know? Yeah, you face. Oh, sorry. You face. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, I also Bye. probably have to run. <laughs> Gotta get, get out of here. All right. Thanks, sir. Have a great day. Bye. Boxland Media. Think big.